Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices with me, Ben Whitaker. And this month we'll be speaking with Carol Schweiger, who's been a transit aficionado since childhood when she started quizzing the MTA on why they had express trains. One of the main things we're going to chat about this month is a response to our previous guest saying Mass is a boondoggle. Carol's spoken about Mass for some time and also looked into and written some of the uh, material on the reviews and results of Mass pilots, uh, especially questioning why many of them didn't even have defined goals. And we explore the idea that maybe many of the things the Mass set out to achieve are going to be achieved instead by road pricing. Let's find out more with Carol Schweiger. Now, let's get talking. So, welcome on to Transit Voices, Carol Schweiger. Absolute delight to get you on from Jenny Martin's recommendation as one of the people we really should get on to uh, have a conversation with. You're an advisory board member on the Intelligent uh, Transport Advisory Committee. Of course, President at Schweiger Consulting. You've had more than four decades of uh, involvement in the transit industry, pushing diversity and equity and quite a voice on mass and a voice about improvements and changes to public transport. But I'd I'd be very interested to know what first got you into the world of transit those years ago. That's a very interesting story. may only be interesting to me, but I'm, I'm happy to share it. So I am one of the few people that I know who wanted to have a career that related to public transit. Many of my colleagues ended up in public transit purely by accident. But for me, it was actually planned. And strangely enough, it started when I was around eight or nine years old and visiting my grandparents in Brooklyn, New York. And they lived quite near a subway station where there was a pedestrian-only bridge that went over the subway tracks. And I would literally spend hours standing on that bridge, watching the subways go in and out of that station. There was just something so fascinating about that when I was a little girl. Everybody I speak to who's in the transit world does end up then staying there for quite a a long time because very much like a lot of public service, you very much get more satisfaction from your job knowing that it has that improvement of society and public service at it. I definitely see from an eight-year-old Carol that she's gone on to do that. One of the topics I'd love to ask you about today, as we said, you know, a number of our guests have picked as their boondoggle mass and I, I know you've you've, you've spoken uh, quite a bit about mass, and we've seen it gradually evolve from the early hype of it, it can be everything depending on who you've hung around the water cooler with. To there's actually been a bunch of trials, and in some cases, countrywide laws passed to try and encourage and subsidise mass integrations. I'd be very interested to hear your take now on mass. Do you think our, our guests are correct to pick? the all-sing-all-dancing mass as a boondoggle? Or do you think it's really going to come into its stride and do something really special soon? I'd love to hear your version of the mass that you think might really move the needle. It is not surprising that some of your other guests have said that it's really a boondoggle because 
I think very early on, a lot of us who read the master's thesis where this was described, there was a tremendous amount of hype around that without thinking about what was really necessary to bring Moss about. Now, I would not call it a boondoggle. I think maybe very early on it was. I think as the years have gone by, we are understanding more about how it could potentially be one of several mobility solutions for people. But I think the boondoggle sort of stems from if you build it, they will come. If you own a car and you don't understand exactly how much you pay every time you get in that car alone and drive somewhere, it's going to take an awful lot to change your behavior about getting in that car alone and driving anywhere. So I think the first thing that we really need to focus on in Moss, and I feel like we're finally, finally getting to this point, is we need to bring in the behavioral scientists to help us understand how do we change people's travel behavior. The Moss offer has to be at least as good as getting in the car alone. So I think we didn't do that at the beginning of months. It was going to solve all mobility problems for everybody, but we never really looked at what were the components of Moss that we needed to fully understand before we had companies building Moz platforms. One thing I've said over the years is Moz is not an app. A lot of people think, well, if you give somebody an app, they're going to naturally use it. But again, where is the behavioral understanding of that? So like I said, I wouldn't call it a boondoggle, but I think now we've had the last several years, we've been discussing why it hasn't worked and what is it that we need to understand or overcome. And fortunately, there's been a lot of really good work done to identify the barriers and challenges. Jana Socher, who you may know, who was involved in one of the very first Moss pilots in Gothenburg, Sweden. She was the lead evaluator of that. And a couple of years ago, wrote a great paper for the International Transport Forum that talked about the reality of the barriers and challenges and what is it that we need to do to overcome that. So I feel like we actually are in a different place now, but we still have work to do. I very recently did a pretty involved literature review on Moss, 
and specifically MOS implementations that are still in existence. Suffice it to say that there are many, many deployments that ended when the pilot project ended. There was no reason to keep them operating. The results were sketchy. Did they actually meet the goals and objectives that were originally set up for that pilot? In many cases, the answer is no. And some of those pilots were never even evaluated. Now that we understand kind of exactly where we stand, what is still operating and why is it still operating, I think we now have a good chance to build the partnerships that need to exist from us to work, to provide the incentives to people to actually use MOS and actually make a decision about their mobility that is sustainable and is thinking about the environment a little bit. I think we are now at a point where we have a much better understanding of where MOS fits into the whole mobility ecosystem. I really am starting to wonder, and so as you were speaking really about the psychological decision-making, changing people's behaviors, changing people what they do, that a lot of mass has got really tied up in this idea of central payment, which is almost an absolute distraction from what we're trying to achieve, that they almost thought what we need to do to begin with is get everybody behind a central account and everybody behind one app or one account or one something else so that they get one unified bill. And that is nothing to do with behavior change. A lot of the things that we're talking about here and getting somebody so that they can live a, a car light or a car optional life and join up multiple modes, that's a journey planner. That's a totally different thing. And in fact, you know, some of the utility you get from using a private car is that you have a locker space with you so that all the stuff you might need can stay in the car between a three-point journey so that at the third point in your journey when you go swimming, you've got that. And in the first point where you go shopping, you can dump that and you're not having to take everything everywhere. Allowing somebody to live a car optional day with a multi-point journey and different things is more about having storage lockers and having joined up payments. It may be in the bad old days of transit where getting a an account set up for bicycle rental and an account set up for an Oyster card or a, a mass transit card and something else, I could see all of that was friction between somebody moving between multiple modes. But those frictions have begun to disappear for different reasons. So if I travel around London, I can now tap a bank card throughout the whole thing without setting up a local account. And now there's even bike shares where you don't need to set up an account. You just tap a bank card and off you go. And I know not everybody has bank cards, but where you're using an Uber and the payment is just taken care of in the cloud and I'm not having to go to a, an ATM and get out money halfway through my journey to do it. When the payments have lost their friction, the need for a centralized payment is, is a boondoggle. It's, it's an utterly unnecessary part of the mass thing. It's more, how do we allow people to understand the immediate costs and the secondary societal costs of private car use. I wonder, I wonder very much whether autonomous vehicles are going to achieve what mass never achieved. So if we have autonomous vehicles, and follow me through here, normally when somebody buys a private vehicle, they size it 
according to the biggest journey they might do in a year. So if they're going to go and take the family camping once a year or go up to grandma's, they'll get a car that they can put them and their kids and their luggage and everything else. And then they'll drive around doing their normal daily. I'm going to the shop in a vehicle that is an SUV that can get everything and the camping and the stove, uh, blah, blah, blah. And the rest of the time they drive around empty. If we and I experienced a bit of this when I lived in London, where most people don't have cars. Whenever I needed a car, I would get a zip car. And it's like a, an instant hire car that they're just parked around the city in lots of different places. And you don't have to go to the rental shop and go through a negotiation and get them try and upsell you insurance. And then at the end, when you give it back, have them say this scratch on the windscreen is you pay this. None of that. It would just be you'd pick a car and you'd tap an ID card on it and off you'd go and drive the car and put it back and you'd be charged by the mile. And the wonderful thing with that is I would pick a car which was the right size for the journey I was doing. So if I was going to the hardware store to pick up lumber, I could get a really big vehicle. And if I was just going with me to go to a meeting somewhere strange, then I would just get a little car. As we move towards autonomous vehicles, the cost of summoning a vehicle to my house without a human driver having to bring it here, and then I can pick it up and go and do my journey, if that's going to the lumber store or going to a, a meeting somewhere without public transport, I can summon a van, I can summon a little car, I can summon an MPV and get the vehicle that's appropriate for the time. But I'll also see the actual cost of that. When I'm looking at my mobility, and if I go to you know a main mapping app like Google Maps, and it's saying, right, you summon a vehicle to do this, here's your public transport option, and I can look at those and go, do I actually want to have to park this in every place? But with an AV, maybe I can just go away. Do I need a locker? Are there places I can leave stuff? so that I don't have to have an entire vehicle just so because I want to have a single roller suitcase kept for me between two meetings. The more I can access the appropriate mobility for the journey easily and not end up with a private vehicle burning a hole in my pocket where I've got fixed costs that I want to make good on, then maybe I'm going to start thinking about those other transit modes more. Maybe rural car light and car optional is going to be more practical. If I can summon a vehicle out to low density areas, I wonder if AV, if autonomous vehicles is going to is going to finally give us this change. But uh, the one thing that we do need that hasn't happened yet, I think, is road pricing. Really good road pricing so that the externalities yes. of low occupancy, low density vehicles are understood. So if I use a big vehicle with almost no one in it in the middle of Manhattan uh, the uh, peak time, I'm paying a lot per mile. And if I use a teeny tiny car out in the boonies off peak, I'm spending almost nothing. And so I'm seeing a price pressure not to use an oversized vehicle in the middle of town when there's a load of public transit and mass transit that's going to get me around. And I'm actually going to do something with a bicycle and a, a car unless I have mobility needs, in which case I could drive around the city better. But I wonder if really everything we want to do with mass is going to be autonomous vehicles and road pricing, because that's going to begin letting us see more of that cost and you know try and get some of the health and e environmental externalities of auto vehicles in terms of the lost working time the injuries and the the health care that come from uh, vehicles and put that in the road pricing that might be what we really need what we don't need is centralized payments i think you've really hit the nail on the head as far as road user pricing. And there was a lot of discussion about road pricing in the very recent ITS European Congress. 
that was held in May in Lisbon. And there's a lot of very sophisticated technology that's been built in order to do exactly what you're talking about. On the autonomous vehicle side, I do agree to some degree that if I can summon a vehicle, use that vehicle and either have it go back to where it is needed somewhere else by itself or whatever, I think that is a utopian vision of where Mars could go. My only concern about that is that with autonomous vehicles, we are still not quite at a point yet where we've incorporated the planning for the use of those vehicles into our urban transportation plans. I think people are starting to do that. I'm seeing more work in that area, but I think we need a little bit more to understand how do we incorporate that into our strategies for mobility moving forward. There's been a lot of discussion here in the US with the autonomous vehicles that are operating in San Francisco right now. There are a fair number of them. Unfortunately, you typically only hear about the incidents, not the good things. But the, the speed at which we're seeing computation take off. I mean, right now it's arguable that the AVs have possibly worse safety in a heterogeneous environment where there's a lot of human beings doing unpredictable things. The thing with autonomous vehicles is unlike human drivers that need training individually, a fleet of AVs on a fixed platform, they can group learn. And so once they cross the line between not being safer than humans and being safer than humans, that's going to be a line that they never backslide on. That's that's going to continue going further. The insurers are going to make it more and more expensive to be a human driver in a busy city. And yes. I think the main thing in road pricing is we have to absolutely price into oblivion deadheading vehicles loitering around the city rather than parking. I think it's wonderful that I think a number of American cities can be reinvigorating when we get rid of private car parking and turn that back into residential, turn it back into green spaces, turn it back into water runoff and all sorts of things. We do need to plan in to not allow the middle classes to just let their robot chauffeurs, chauffeured car just cruise around Manhattan so they don't have to pay for pay for parking because that's what the ultra rich do right now with their private drivers. Yes. And it's it's only a few people that can pay for another human being to simply cruise around London or Manhattan. The moment everyone can do it, we're going to be in gridlock. So we have to price that into oblivion and make it so that those vehicles do have to get out of the city or do something useful that isn't hanging around being empty unless it has a, a useful purpose. But I, I'm looking forward to the utopian vision where all of the parking turns back into human space. Yes. And I'm looking forward to the utopia where anger and short-tempered yes. human beings are not in charge of two-ton, highly-powered machinery driving around cities. We're going to look back like uh, smoking in schools and think, why did we ever let that happen? And anybody who says it's not ready yet is not seeing the rate of change. And we, we have to plan as if it's there here. In transit, 
we have, and in, in politics, we have to set road pricing rules years in advance and say, this is when it's going to come in, plan that into your budgets as a taxi company, as a public transit company. I very much believe the buses should be paying the same road pricing regime so that if you have a large empty bus on a busy street, the transit company is seeing that as expensive. And if you've got a right-sized vehicle in the place with a large number of people with a high degree of occupancy, then that's the right answer. And that, that's going to nicely balance whether those services are being provided by the private sector or the public sector, is if the private sector can put a, a vehicle that doesn't take a lot of room with a lot of people on it, then they're paying very low road, road prices. And we don't care if it's private or public, but we're going to price off yeah. the road, big, empty, heavy vehicles. You mentioned COVID, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. What I've seen from the agencies we work with is that bus has recovered pretty quickly back to its original ridership because it, it tends to have more non-choice riders or people who have no option to work from home. So they've come back into a similar habit. But what we've seen is that the uh, white-collar commuter rail, the, the higher-priced uh, commuter services, they've not quite returned. Well, and I don't think they will back to the original level of uh, nine to five commuting, because a lot of transit design is based around the kind of 1930s idea of, you know, the salary earner gets up in the morning, travels into the city, does something and then comes yeah. back. And the ticketing and the pricing and the price of a monthly pass and the timetables, they're all designed around this tidal flow in and out of a city and the commuter rail tidal flow has gone. You're in Massachusetts, the uh, NBCR, the Boston Commuter Rail. That is a service which is very confusing for a European because it's got these trains, but we'd see a train and the stations and we'd expect that train to run all day. If you're in Germany or Switzerland or England or France, that train would run all day. The commuter rail in, uh, in Boston runs into the town in the morning out of the town in the in the evening and it doesn't do anything the rest of the day apart from you know occasional services and we're staring at it going why you know this is really really weird and what we what we're now seeing on the commuter rail services in in los angeles and in boston and elsewhere is that their ridership is really picking up on the weekends and in the middle of the days and it's a it's a shopping and a leisure service now getting in and out and there are people still commuting but their commutes are not the barbells at the end of the day. It's it's not exactly. first thing in the morning and last of night. It's people are coming in for meetings here and there. It's not all focused on five days a week. It's, it's very much more flexible. And so, you know, we need to break this idea that the transport planning and scheduling is all around the the kind of salary worker and the the, the traditional day, and more yes. around this this knowledge that that most public transport users are women. Many of the journeys are not. A, B, B, A, standard daily journey. They're multi-point and they're different times of day. And, you know, there's moves afoot in Boston to shift the commuter rail into more of a regular service than a uh, commuter service. But, uh, you know, what, what what other sort of changes other than shifting from the this, this strange commuter thing into a, a regular service? And they call it leisure, but I just say people getting in and out of town without having to be at uh, peak time. I think, Again, that was the last thing I was thinking about with COVID and the impacts of COVID. So the impacts on people in this regular commute that we always used in planning these services simply does not exist anymore. The patterns here in the Boston area 
of traffic and, as you say, the commuter rail usage are very different. And our models are still thinking about this old nine to five, Monday to Friday, um, everybody's commuting in to a central location and coming back out. What I think COVID has done has completely shattered those models that we have used in the past. And again, it requires delving into people's travel patterns in a way that we've never done it before. We just made that assumption many, many years ago about that going into a hub, coming back out, it's about nine to five. Isn't that the way everybody travels? And with more people having the flexibility to work from home at least a couple of days a week, that's critical. Now, there's another connection to the planning side that I really don't think in the past we've done a great job at, and that's looking at real estate. So what is everyone talking about now post-COVID? There are a lot of companies with these very, very large offices that they're leasing, and a lot of them are empty a lot of the time. So the whole real estate picture, we need to be looking at very closely as we're planning services because that office that used to have 100 people Monday through Friday, nine to five, now the number of people is much smaller and the times that people are coming into the office are much more variable than they ever were. I think we need to tie the real estate part of it and the details of people's travel behavior back to behavior and their patterns. We have to incorporate that into our transport modeling much more than what we've done in the past. The old assumptions just simply are not going to work anymore. Mm. Well, also the the old pricing for monthly passes, you know, to get someone locked in or give them a product which is not too expensive to use for regular travel when that travel is not five days a week in and out. Flexible or capping where you're not, if you don't know at the beginning of the week how much you're going to do, really you want a capping fare not one that's punishing you for making the wrong decision at the beginning and leaving you feeling angry and bitter that you paid for a weekly and then only actually traveled in two days this week. You want something that's capping you automatically. So I think the account-based ticketing naturally plays into this more flexible and figure it out as you go along kind of thing. So you feel good as you use more public transit rather than angry that you didn't choose at the beginning of the week a fixed product that didn't actually suit what you did in the end. I wonder if what we're seeing here is a medium-term change to cities entirely, not just mobility. So if we're getting rid of private car parking, if we're moving to electric and getting rid of the smog and smoke in cities, and we're converting more of the offices and car parks into residentials and back to human spaces, and giving road diets and putting bicycles in and everything else. 
the cities are going to become much nicer and much more economical places to live because there will suddenly be additional accommodation. You've got all the fun things to do. It's much more financially straightforward to uh, pay for infrastructure in a city rather than spread out miles away. I wonder if we're going to see more population growth in a city, more family developments in a city, because it's going to be nicer in the medium term as a city cleans up, doesn't have the noise of heavy traffic, moves to more mobility. There's there's a possible utopia there. I completely agree with you that I think we are going to see that. We're going to see the move back to the cities once people realize how much more livable they have become. It'd be great to to hear from you, Carol, uh, your pick for uh, the current boondoggle idea uh, that you see in the industry that you think is taking too much of the oxygen in the room. And then after that, your underdog that I think should be given the spotlight of attention a bit more and bring it up because it's really getting onto the punch of making a difference. The boondoggle, you've probably heard this numerous times now. It's the Hyperloop idea that we're going to put everything underground and it's going to be some utopia somehow. I think there's frankly just too much money being spent on that idea. And there are a lot better things that we could do with that money, like some of the things you just mentioned in making changes to cities to make them more livable. Just by virtue of the fact of putting some kind of guideway with cars underground isn't going to do it. We have the perfect example here in Boston when the central artery was placed underground. Everybody thought that would solve a lot of mobility issues when, in fact, The minute that that artery was put underground, the level of trip making in single occupant vehicles increased because now you've facilitated people's travel. Yeah, it's induced demand. If you you put more vehicle roadways in, you get more vehicles. If you put more bicycle lanes in, you get more bicycles. If you put more subways in, you get more subway riders. And... You can't find geometry. No amount of self-driving Google cars will change the geometry of single occupancy vehicles. That's why mass transit is required for high-density mass cities. The autonomous vehicles are great when you're doing dilute or low-density areas further outside from your transit ingress and egress points. But it's BRT that I really want to see. Uh, It's the cheapest thing you can do to improve your transit is a BRT lane. Okay, so, well, especially... Hyperloop, which is the Tesla Hyperloop with a car in a guided way. I mean, really, Hyperloop was supposed to be a semi-evacuated tube with an even higher speed train. So it's the idea that you would extend high-speed rail so that it wasn't just competing with planes over a 200, 300-mile range, but over much more because it could, in theory, go quicker than a plane because it can have an evacuated tube. The Tesla Hyperloop is not even that. It's uh, slower than almost the slowest train. They've just gone retrograde there. I mean, the, the high-speed trains we, we have in Italy, in France, in Japan, in China, without any evacuated tunnels, are already 
300 plus kilometers an hour. They're very, very effective at what they do. And France has recently banned uh, domestic flights below two and a half hours, I think. A fantastic yes. move. They've just said there's great mm. subsidized trains. Have at them. We'll put the uh, the Hyperloop definitely as a boondoggle. So what what should we shine our, our attention and our, our funding on as the underdog? So this is probably going to seem a little bit bizarre. In looking at where technology is going, there's still a critical part of technology infrastructure, if you will, that is not fully developed. And that's on the data side of things. And I think one of the issues with mobility as a service has actually been on the data side, where there are places where there's no open data, there's no real strategy for using data. You can't operate some of these technologies without some kind of data strategy. Now, some countries are coming up with national data strategies, which I think is is really commendable and definitely is facilitating these mobility solutions that we're offering travelers. But they're also talking about things like data spaces so that there's a data strategy that exists that makes it easier to discover data and information about mobility. And it also ensures that that data is accessible and that it's of the highest quality as possible. So I think that's kind of the underdog here when I look around it at some of the work being done in Europe on data strategies in and the UK. Um, DFT has a, a new transport data strategy and these European data spaces that are being developed in Germany and the Netherlands and Finland as well. That's where some of our focus needs to be in order to facilitate things like enhanced journey planning or mobility as a service or other ways of informing travelers about all of their alternatives and providing them with the real-time information. It's one thing to give somebody a, a journey planner and for them to develop an itinerary, but if they don't know what is actually happening to the services that they selected as they're making their journey, the trip may not be what we call in the U.S. the complete trip. So I think that data strategy piece is a critical one, and it's an underdog. It's not an exciting thing to discuss. So I think that's another reason why people think about data, data standards. Oh, that's pretty boring stuff. It's it's a cornerstone piece. It's why Singapore started with a data openness and data, you know, Publishing a PDF is not data openness. You know, it's got to be machine readable. It's got to be in some sort of discoverable place. If the data quality is poor, it should be flagged as poor, and then you know, efforts made to improve it. Fully agree. 
Thank you. Carol, it's been fantastic speaking with you, but who, who who would you pick as another voice that we should we should speak to on another podcast? That is a really difficult question. I've got a couple of people in mind who I consider colleagues and I consider their views about mobility and technology enabled mobility to be very forward thinking. One of them is aren't Batzner from Switzerland. He is someone who understands the mobility ecosystem perhaps better than almost anybody else I can think of. I know you would have uh, just a brilliant discussion with him. And another person I would recommend is Kevin Chambers, who's here in the U.S. in the Portland, Oregon area, who is doing some really groundbreaking work with smaller and rural agencies, looking at the best way for these agencies to embrace and utilize technology. That's one of the biggest barriers in a lot of these very, very small agencies in the U.S. And he's got some really very forward thinking that he's done And he's actively working with agencies to bring technology to them in a different way than what we've thought about before. That sounds very interesting. So I'll I'll definitely put Kevin on on the list because it's one of the things Jenny was bringing up as well, which is not conflating rural travel issues with urban and suburban, making sure that you really do deal with it as a completely different creature. Fantastic. That has been such an enjoyable conversation. I, I, I feel like I could chat to you for hours on this, uh, Carol. It's uh, been really good. And thank you so much for coming on Transit Voices this month. Absolutely. I feel the same way. These are all topics that I love to discuss. But unfortunately, we have limited time. But thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, thank you so much to Carol for coming and talking to us this month. I found it really useful to speak to someone who spent so much time going through the mass results and the the mass journey. And I I do hope that we will achieve the way of nudging people away from uh, private car only use into car light and car optional life. But there's a lot we have to do in infrastructure to make that possible in cities, especially some of the USA cities where even sidewalks are uh, a dim and distant memory. But I still hold out a lot of hope, as does Carol, that the future for cities is bright as we convert parking back into human habitation, as AVs and road pricing might help us to really show the society cost and the real cost of private car use in our high density areas. Tune in next month to find out more from Transit Voices. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.